Last Sunday we were introduced to Gideon and we saw how God called him to deliver Israel. And at the time when God called Gideon, he was mad at God. He was angry with him, frustrated. And the reason Gideon was frustrated with God was something all of us should take to heart. It's because he was looking at his situation from the wrong perspective. He wasn't looking at it from God's point of view. And so when we look at things from the wrong perspective, we're going to draw wrong conclusions. And so Gideon uh, had a couple of wrong conclusions he was wrestling with. God was either not everything that he was cracked up to be, or God was everything he was cracked up to be, but he just simply betrayed Israel. And both of those conclusions are wrong, but they left Gideon with a sour taste in his mouth towards God. And so when the angel of the Lord visited Gideon, Gideon had nothing good to say. He was cynical, sarcastic, frustrated. And it was really all because he wasn't looking at things from God's point of view. So in the middle of all of that, we find Gideon uh, working and working hard. He wasn't curled up in a ball. He wasn't letting other people do it. He was still, still working, working strong and hard and trying to provide. And he was doing all of that while he was crying out to God. And God heard him. And God basically said, you know, the angel of the Lord basically, basically said, you know, you're right, Gideon. It is, it is time for God to deliver Israel. And I want you to do it. And so suddenly Gideon was moving to the back of the classroom and coming up with all kinds of reasons why God needed to pick someone else. And we remember this conversation that Gideon was having with the angel of the Lord. He didn't realize he was actually talking to God. And at one point he actually asked this messenger uh, for a sign. He said, he said, I need you to prove to me that this message you're giving me is actually a message from God. Well, at the end of that conversation, Gideon was terrified. He was scared to death. He was afraid he was going to die because he realized he'd been talking to God. And what was worse is that he had been debating with him. He'd been sarcastic to him. He had even tested God. And he was doing it all while he was looking him straight in the face. And so where we're at in our passage in chapter 6 this morning, God has called Gideon. But there are still two unresolved issues. One is Baal. Gideon and everybody else is worshiping Baal. That's the first problem. And the second one is Gideon himself. Gideon needs to accept God's call. So if God asks you and me to do something, there's a decision that we have to make, whether or not we're going to be obedient, whether we're going to comply, whether we're going to, you know, give up something or stop doing something or, you know, our time is being called upon. You know, our priorities are being asked to be rearranged. And so this is, the, this is the situation. And so these are the two areas of focus we will be on this morning. One is Baal and the other is Gideon's call. And as we look at Gideon, we're going to see him being persistently resistant to the things that God's asking him to do. And so all of us should be asking ourselves, how receptive are we to the things God would have us to do? Are we resistant? So we're going to begin reading in verse 25 uh, for this first section. 
So on that very night, so this is the, in the daytime, he's spoken with the angel of the Lord. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bowl offered up on the altar that had been built. And they said to each other, Who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Well, then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, he must die. Because he tore down Baal's altar and cut it down, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead his own case, because someone tore down his altar. And that day Gideon's father called him Jerubel, saying, Let Baal plead his own case, because he tore down his altar. So beginning in our passage in verse 25, it begins and opens with the words, on that very night. So God didn't waste any time. He said this love affair with Baal ends right now. You don't worship Baal anymore. Well, unfortunately, this pagan worship site belonged to his dad. It says there in verse 25 that this site that God wanted tore down is the one that belongs to your father. And we also notice that the entire city has a vested interest in this high place. And you will remember what these kind of places were. We've talked about this as we've studied other passages in Scripture. So we have a, a pretty good idea of the kind of things that were being conducted at these uh, worship services, at these pagan fertility god uh, high places they would, where they were doing these things. Well, it belonged to his dad. And the entire city had a vested interest because when the city woke up, they discovered that the, that the statue to Baal and the Asherah pole had been destroyed and replaced with an altar to God. We don't know quite how this works. We don't know the nature of this. But uh, we don't know if... if uh, we don't know if Joash had donated his land for this worship site. It could have been up on a hill on his property that the entire city could see. And so when they woke up, they saw that the pole was down, the statue was gone, and a new altar was up there and there was smoke ascending. It could have been something like that. Uh, Joash could have donated... Uh, the money for this to be built right in the center of the city. We don't know, but for some reason, it belongs to him, but the entire city feels like it's part of theirs too. So it gives us the impression that this is not necessarily on Joash's uh, front lawn. 
because after they've conducted this thorough investigation, that's when they end up going to Joash's front lawn. We don't know quite exactly how this works, but what we do know is that Joash has provided a pagan worship site for him, for his family, and for the entire city. So one thing we know from that for sure is that Joash has messed up. And to make matters worse, earlier in the chapter when the angel of the Lord was talking to Gideon, we find out that at some point in his life, he worshiped the one true God. And so did, so did Joash's dad. And they had both been teaching Gideon about God. In verse 13, it says, you know, when, when, when Gideon was confronted by the angel, he said, oh, really? Well, where are all these wonder, mighty miracles and signs and wonders that our, that our fathers told us about? And so we can see this, this distance, this, this, this path that, is, that has happened in Joash's life where he would, he would follow God to this point now to where he is the one who has provided the city with this worship site. And before we move on, we want to also notice that when the angel of the Lord talked to Gideon, he asked him to, uh, to make a full commitment of himself in all aspects. What, what I'm asking you to do is going to change everything. You know, you're going to be going against your dad and your family, the village, the tribes. You know, you're going to be asking the nation to change direction. You know, you're going to be, you know, you're pretty much putting all of your eggs in one basket with me. It's, a, it's the picture of full commitment. And we remember that when Gideon brought him that meal out as a gift, that the angel of the Lord consumed that gift with fire and turned it into a sacrifice. He turned it into a burnt offering. It tells us that fire came up from the rock and consumed it all. It's the picture of a burnt offering. Uh, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Mosaic Law, there was different kinds of sacrifices. The burnt offering was one where you did make an offering for your sin, but the entire animal was consumed with the fire. And so it was the picture of complete consecrate, consecration. And so we saw that in that conversation with the angel of the Lord and then our, chat, our verses open up this morning uh, with on that very night. On the same day he talked to Gideon, on that night, he said, Baal is gone. We don't do that. And I do not share the stage. And so that concept of complete consecration. And then after this, this pagan altar had been torn down and a new one had been constructed to God, he wanted what? A burnt offering. It is the picture of complete consecration. Now, Gideon was given this task to tear down this altar, and it was a, it was a whopper. This was a big deal, not a small deal. And he thought about it. And in verse 27, it tells us that he was too afraid to do it at daytime because of his father's household and the men of the city. And that tells us that if he had tried to do it during the daytime, that people would have tried to stop him. There would have been resistance. And what was he going to do? Was he going to kill them? Was he going to have a big war, a little battle with all of his guys against these guys? And 
just a big bloodshed battle over destroying the statue. Well, he thought about that and he thought, well, do I really want to go toe to toe with my own home, with my father's household, my relatives? And uh, I will concede that Gideon probably did this mostly because he was scared. But there's a good lesson there for us, and that is that sometimes we are right and we know we're right. We know we're on, on, on the side of God. God is, wants something done or doesn't want something done or it's time to put your foot down, and you know. And Gideon could have done that. You know, he could have done it in the daytime. Had a big standoff with the village and the city would have just had to had to come to terms with what God was saying and what they wanted to do and, and something could have happened, something bad. But in the long run, what ended up happening is that the very people who were wanting to kill Gideon came alongside him. And so sometimes there is a better way than just being right and being the last man standing and saying, you're all wrong, I'm right. And you didn't bring anybody with you. And so we can see that this happened, even though it may have been born out of fear. And so uh, we see here that the men of the city conducted a thorough investigation. So this was kind of like Dateline, uh, 48 hours. Uh, there was a, a big investigation. But we notice that from the very beginning, they had already decided the sentence, whoever did this was going to die. It never seems to have occurred to them that what happened should have happened, that this altar should have been torn down. That was not part of the thought process. But at the end of this long investigation, they concluded that Gideon, son of Joash, did it, verse 29. And we need to give them credit for doing a good job because they convicted the, the right person. So we have to at least do that. But how did they know? How did they know? There was no surveillance cameras. You know, I guess they could have done footprints, matched them up to sandals. I don't know. But uh, we know that there was 10 servants that went with Gideon. And those 10 servants have family and friends. And so somebody might have talked. One of the servants might have talked. Um, maybe they realized that there was a bull missing. Maybe Gideon was missing. <laughs> maybe he was laying low. We don't know, but at some point they realized who it was. And so they went to Joash's house to kill him. And so this shows us a very terrible decline from when, uh, you know, Deborah and Barak led the country and they, there was this peace and people feared God. And then when they died, things fell apart again. And so now we see that when this horrible pagan I, you know, I don't want to go into it, but just the fertility rituals, the things that these people were doing, you know, uh, the fact that that was all torn down, that there was outrage instead of conviction, is bad. As uh, Lanta would say, uh, it's not good, Brother Craig, not good. <laughs> so the men of the city, they went to Joash's house and they said, bring out your son because he must die. Now we notice that it is... Uh, the men of the city making this demand and not Joash's household. It's just the men of the city making this demand now. So we have this picture of these guys that came to Joash's house. They're in the yard. They haven't came in the house. They're outside. 
and maybe it's Gideon and his father's household. And there's a big meeting out front, and the only person missing is Gideon. And they're saying, bring him out. He's got to die. Well, by this point, I'm sure Gideon has explained himself to his family. And Joash is beginning to have a change of heart. He's starting to think about the things he knows that are true, the things that he saw happen, the things that his father taught him, the good things about the true God, and the fact that his son was told by God to tear down an altar that belonged to him. And then the fact that because his son has done this at the hands of God, that now there's all of this hostility within his own family. I'm the leader of this family, and my siblings and their relatives are in an argument and heated situation over Baal. And now my youngest son may lose his life over Baal. And so Joash, and hopefully his family, is beginning to have a change of heart. And so in verse 31, instead of doing what they said, he says, well, if he is a God, let him deal with it himself. If he's a God, and the logic here is that Baal should get the first shot at Gideon and don't take away his prerogative just by taking matters into your own hands. And we're going to see that Joash's family is not the only one who's beginning to have a change of heart because time is going to pass. And Baal is not going to take revenge. He's not going to revenge. Gideon is doing just fine. And so this begins to spread what's happened. People begin to hear about Gideon and what Gideon did and that Gideon is doing just fine. And that Gideon's family is now worshiping the one true God. And so the other tribes begin to hear about this. And so when the Midianites come back, because remember what they were doing, every time things started to go good, every time they started to get their harvest, the Midianites came in like a swarm of locusts and took it all. So when the Midianites came back, now everybody's attention is starting to turn towards God and they're starting to look towards Gideon. What happened in the city illustrates the importance of remembering what God has done for us in the past. So when you're in a situation, it's really important to remember history. It's important to remember the things that God has been faithful to you about in the past. It's important to, to remain loyal to the things that are true. And so when we look at, at what happens with this nation, the situation the nation's in right there, the way everybody's looking at things, it's kind of like in America right now. Uh, you know, it's bizarre. But, you know, uh, the way the nation looks at things here and the way that even, even Gideon. So you can see that their outlook was distorted and perverted simply because they had forgotten about the things that God had done for them. They had forgotten about the things that are really true. And it left them with trying to do what was right in their own eyes. They were their own God. They were their own dial. Their convictions were set by themselves. And there was really no, the truth was relative to you. And it left the nation in a mess. And, you know, we can see Christians today, or at least people who profess to be Christians, doing the same things. You may be able to think about 
uh, some of the distorted views that professing Christians have about uh, evolution, abortion, suffering, prosperity, demons, ghosts, some of the things you hear Christians say about ghosts, horoscopes, justice, what real justice is, and the biggest one, in my opinion, is personal rights. When you hear Christians talking about their rights, it's all because Christians, or people who profess to be Christians, begin to, they, they don't remember history. They don't remember the things that God has done, His faithfulness and His love, what He did for us on the cross. And they abandon things that are true. Culture doesn't decide what's true. We all know this. But because we're in the world, it eats at us, it tears at us, and breaks us down. Before you know it, we're someplace we weren't at. And so there's a reset. So this is what's happened here. And so let's read what happens next, beginning in verse 33. And we're going to actually finish the chapter. So you should all be very happy. Verse 33. It says, All the Midianites, Amalekites, and Quidamites, which just means people from the east, they gathered together crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon and he blew the ram's horn and the Bezerites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. And he also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. And then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said... I will put a fleece of wool here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and on the ground is dry, and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and, and, wrung, it, and wrung dew out of it, filling a whole bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. And that night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and the dew was all over the ground. So, um, I should have clicked it on that one. And then I should have clicked it on that one. Okay, so we're all caught up. So now we are, uh, we can see that sure enough, Midian does return. They're back. It says there in verse 33 that they gathered together, they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped in the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel. So you know what that means. It's time for us to look at a series of maps. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> so... Um, if you said something to me about my maps, I want you to know that you are not alone. So, I got the message. Take it easy on the maps. But, uh, we need to get you maps for I just, I don't know. It's just how, it's how my, I said, I have, I have a lot. I, I like them. I do. I have to admit. It helps me visualize. So, uh, well, anyway, here, uh, we can see what's happened is that the Spirit of the Lord took control of Gideon. And my translation says this in verse 34, that the Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. 
Yours may say something different. But we can see the result. The result is, is that the Abizrites rallied behind him. That's the family that was wanting to kill him. That's the men of the city. That's his clan. And they're a clan that's within the larger tribe of Manasseh. And so the people who were against Gideon in the beginning are now behind him. And messages went out, and so the entire tribe of Manasseh is now behind Gideon. And so is the other tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So we can see the result. And so when it talks about the angel of the Spirit of the Lord taking control, that means he, he clothed Gideon. In other words, God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish through Gideon. And here, what he was doing was he was forming an army. And so uh, it's the unmistakable hand of God, but at the same time, everyone can recognize that God in the same time, in the same process, is authenticating his call upon Gideon. Well, uh, as we've been reading up to this point, everything seems to be going really good for Gideon. Uh, Gideon's been pretty much a willing vessel. But with the task at hand, Gideon begins to soon have doubts. And uh, I can't blame him. This, uh, this is described as just the camels are too many to be counted. This was a sea of people, a huge army. They come in with their tents, the families and everything, but they had an army. Uh, Israel was completely outnumbered. And he's thinking about leading this army against them and everybody getting killed and the, the families that these men belong to and the nation itself. What will, these, what will they do to our families? What will they do to our nation after we try to pull this stunt off? And so it's, it's easy to see why Gideon has doubts. He's scared. And in verse 36 he says, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a fleece of wool here on the threshing floor. And so God complied. And so we talked last week about what a threshing floor was, right? It's where the, the animals were walked around on the stalks and it broke the grain away from the stalks. And then they'd, like a big pitchfork, they'd throw it up in the air and the wind would carry away the chaff and the grain would fall back down to the ground. It was a way of winnowing or sifting. And so this is the threshing floor. And so what he's done is he's taken a piece of wool, he's put it on the ground in the threshing floor, and he's asked God to make it be wet and everything else be dry. And God did it. God complied. But as he began to think about it, he thought, well, you know what? I just put something absorbent in the middle of the threshing floor, and no wonder everything's dry because it soaked up all the water from everything around it. That doesn't mean that God's going to deliver and so you can see how he began to think of scientific reasons why it wasn't a miracle. And so he says, all right, God, well, don't be angry with me, but let me, let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece, which reversed the results. It would have been an unmistakable miracle for the, uh, the fleece to be dry and everything else to be wet. And that night, God did as Gideon requested. Verse 40. 
So was it wrong for Gideon to lay out this fleece before God? Was that wrong? We notice that Gideon says, if you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said. You see, Gideon already knew what God wanted to do, what, what God wanted to do. And he had already given Gideon, he had already promised Gideon the victory. There was no mistake about what God wanted to see happen and that he had already promised Gideon victory. This, this was doubt. This was a lack of faith. This is not commendable. This is not a model for how we are to interact with God. God wants us to operate from faith. There's a difference between something in the Bible that's it's just telling us something that happened and when the Bible is telling us something that should happen. Uh, there's descriptive language in the Bible where it's just telling us what happened. And just because we see something happening with Gideon doesn't mean that's prescriptive for all of us. Prescriptive means this should happen. When the doctor gives you a prescription, he's prescribing something, something that you should go get and start taking immediately. So just because this is in a narrative doesn't mean that this is what we're supposed to be doing. The problem here is that Gideon didn't have confidence. But it wasn't confidence in himself or in the army. It was confidence in who? God. He didn't have confidence in God. That's a lack of faith. He couldn't trust Him. And so he put out these tests because Gideon needed a certain level of proof, a certain level of confirmation for him personally before he could finally trust God. And God did do it. We should never forget that sometimes God has larger things and uh, bigger fish to fry than teaching Gideon a lesson. We see God complying with Gideon's weak faith. You know, we're not supposed to test God. Uh, Jesus rebuked the devil for that idea when he was in the wilderness, when he was fasting and Satan came to tempt him. He rebuked the devil for such a thing. What did he say? What did Jesus say to the devil? He said, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to test. And, you know, Gideon, Gideon knew he was doing something wrong. Because he said, you know, God, don't be angry with me. And one, one pastor joked, uh, read it, he made a joke, he said, that, you know, when, when you know that you're not, when, you're, when you know you're not doing something wrong, you don't ever start things off with God like that. You know, God... I'm getting ready to praise your name. Don't be mad. Gideon knew he was he was up to no good. And so often we want God to uh, spell out everything, to tell us the how, the when, the where, and the why, and we want this so that we don't have to exercise faith. And in all honesty, it leaves us with a certain element of control. It's the opposite of walking by faith. Now, before we get too hard on Gideon, we have to remember that we are better equipped than he is. You know, we have the life of Christ to look at and see. We have the cross and the resurrection. We have the entire Bible. The Bible equips us for every good work. 
And we also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in our heart and that enables us. Uh, he teaches us, He guides us, and He encourages us. So we're in a much better place than Gideon. And in closing, we're going to turn to one other place in the Bible. I want to remind us that the Bible tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. And I thought about this, and I thought about the one, the one time in the, in the entire Bible for me that because when I first read it uh, a long time ago, when I first read this, I, I couldn't quite get it. I couldn't quite get why Jesus was so you know, impressed with this guy's faith. But uh, do you remember when Jesus was, was impressed with the faith of a Roman centurion? Is that recollection? Uh, it's in Luke. It's in Matthew 2, but... Let's read, the, let's read the passage in Luke together. If you still have your Bibles open, let's, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. And the reason we're looking at this, you guys, is, is again, because we want to see what it is that God prefers in our lives. How He wants us to approach Him. And that is through faith. Not through tests and uh, those kind of things. Begin reading in verse 1, chapter 7. It says, When he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion slave, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to, for you to grant this. Because he loves our na your nation, our nation, and has built us a synagogue. Well, Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, "Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command." I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. The key here is that... Um, and I, I think maybe since I work in a uh, kind of a paramilitary environment at work, um, uh, there's lots of policemen, and there's, lot, there's not as many uh, patrol, but then there's corporals, there's quite a few corporals. There's a whole ton of sergeants. And uh, then over the sergeants are lieutenants. There's not as many of those. But all of those people are going to be under one guy, a captain. A captain. And so District 1 has one captain. District 3 up here on Glenway, uh, Glenway has one captain. And, uh, of course, the captain has authority. He has a command staff, the assistant chiefs, and then the police chief, and then there's the city manager, the city council. But there are people above him, but not too many. A centurion is in charge of about 100 soldiers. And if he says for someone to do it, they do it. Where I work at, if the captain says it, that's it. There's no argument. 
Whatever the captain says, you do it. If he says stop doing it, you stop doing it. And the captain knows that. He knows that he has that kind of authority. And he can stop something or stop something or start something on a dime. And he doesn't have to worry about whether or not we're going to do it or not. He just knows we will. And he is exercising faith in the, in the authority and the people recognizing that authority. And so this Roman centurion was recognizing the same thing. And it just amazed Jesus. Because this Gentile Roman centurion understood that all Jesus had to do was say that he's going to be cured and he will. And when we read in Matthew chapter 8, it says that Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was cured that very moment. We remember in John chapter 20 when, when Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was finally there and could see him for himself. And he still had to touch him, remember? But when he did, he fell to his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. This is where we are. We are the people who have not yet seen but believe. God's patience with Gideon should be an encouragement to us because it shows us that God is patient and compassionate with, our, with us in our weaknesses. Even in our weakest moments, he's, he's there and He loves us and He's compassionate. And it also shows us that even though we are weak, He can accomplish great things through us if we're willing. And as we continue reading and what's going to happen next Sunday, we're going to find out that once Gideon became convinced, he was good to go. So let's pray.